Well, you are in for a treat this morning because this is the greatest message that you have ever heard. Now, before you think I've gotten prideful on you, I did not say that this is going to be the greatest sermon that you've ever heard, but this is the greatest message that you've ever heard because here in Ephesians 2, Paul gives the message of God taking people who are dead and making them alive. This is the greatest message, a masterpiece of the Apostle Paul of what God has done and is doing of taking people who are dead and giving them life in his son. I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 as we take a look at a beautiful passage here together this morning. And there on your outline, you can see three things we're gonna look at. This beautiful story of what God is doing. Number one, we're gonna see our problem in Ephesians 2, one through three. But then we're gonna see God's solution to our problem. And finally, we'll talk about application for us. So first, let's take a look, number one on your outline, our problem. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here we see, number one on your outline, our problem. And I love what Paul does here. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's not politically correct. He gets right down to the heart of the problem, our problem. Notice what Paul says here about our sad, pathetic, helpless existence apart from God. Notice verse one there in chapter two. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The first word I want you to see there is the word you. Here in Texas, we would say y'all. And y'all, myself included, every single one of us, every man, woman, and child, it doesn't matter if you were born in the penthouse or in the poorhouse, it doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, what you do, every single one of us is included in that word y'all. Paul says, and y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins. The second word I want you to take note of there is the word were. Were, it's an easy word to pass over, but it's a very important word. The Greek word behind it is the word ontos. You've heard ontology. Ontology is the study of existence. It's the study of being. And Paul says in our ontology, who we are, what does it mean to be human? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Ontologically, we existed, but we were spiritually dead, spiritually cut off from God. There was no hope, no spark of life, flatlining dead. That's how we existed. Paul says, you were 
dead in your trespasses and sins. Both of those words, trespasses and sins, they both describe uh, what it is to fall short of the glory of God. We consistently, 100% of the time, fall short of God's glory. Uh, these both words describe a rebellion against God, a violation of who he is and of his standards. Think about this. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. But next, notice that we were dead men and women walking. The walking dead. Notice verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But you were dead, but you were walking. The word for walking here is one of my favorite Greek words. It's the Greek word peripateo. I love how it just rolls off the tongue. Even when you say it, it's like you're walking around. The words just kind of rock out of your mouth when you say it, right? You're peripateoing around. This particular word is used to describe uh, walking and the conduct of life. It's sometimes used to describe the clothes that we put on us. And Paul says we were walking around. We're clothing ourselves according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We're peripateoing around, in other words, in our sin. Parading around in our sin. This word peripateo, I always think about uh, when we go to the mall, we've all gone to the mall and maybe you buy a new outfit or if you're a lady, maybe you buy a, a nice handbag at North Park Mall. You go to the mall, and what do you do when you get that new outfit or you get that new handbag? Do you take it back to your house? You keep it in its wrapping and its package, and you put it in your closet? No, you peripateo that bad boy around, don't you? You show it off for the world to see. Or if you go out and you buy a new car... You don't take that car home to the garage and put it in the garage. You drive it around the neighborhood. You honk the horn, wave at your friends, and you want to peripateo your car around the neighborhood. Well, this is the picture, Paul says, of what we were doing in our sin. We're parading around in it, showing off. Hey, everybody, look at me. Honk, honk, look at my sin over here, right? This is the picture, Paul says, of what we do. We're proud of it. But notice what Paul says there in verse 2. Ironically, walking around, peripateoing in our sin, but we were actually under the influence of someone else because he says uh, we were doing all of this according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That phrase according to, you could translate as under the influence of. As we were peripateoing around in our sin, showing off just how sinful we were, the reality is we were doing all of this under the influence of the fallen world and under the influence of Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working among the sons of disobedience. See, even in our pride of displaying how sinful we are, we were being influenced by the world and by Satan. But it gets worse 
See, just, just because you are under the influence of the world and of Satan doesn't mean that you're guiltless because notice what Paul says. We were also, notice what he says, verse three, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So here Paul says we were influenced by the world, we were influenced by Satan, but we were also influenced by the sinful flesh inside of us. That flesh is the human propensity to sin, the inclination we have to do what is right in our own eyes. And notice as well, Paul says about us that we indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That word for indulged really highlights the fact that we loved it. We were walking around, peripateoing around in our sin, but the whole time we loved it, right? Let's be honest. Sin feels good for a time. So we indulged in it. And then notice, here's the kicker. Paul says we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Because ontologically we existed as dead people walking around in our sin, we were by nature children of God's wrath. This is not good news. When we see how Paul here describes the state of our existence apart from Christ, this is not good news. I want you to let the reality of what Paul is saying here sink in for just a minute. So often when we read these verses, we immediately want to rush to verse four and get to the good news, but I'm going to ask you to really stop for a second and reflect on the bad news that Paul is saying here. And I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm doing all kinds of things I've never done before here at Grace. We're going to do another one here this morning. We're actually going to pause mid-sermon. You may have noticed that in the pastoral prayer, I skipped through the time of confession because I want to do it now. I want you to reflect on the nature of your existence, dead apart from Christ. And take a moment to confess that sin to the Lord. So let's pause right here and just take a few moments to reflect on us as dead people walking.
but God. Verse 4. But God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this is the gospel in two words right here. Existing dead in our trespasses and sins. Number two on your outline. Now we see God's solution to our problem. Notice verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and God raised us up with him and God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. This is God's solution to our problem. Notice again verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. We were by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy does not give us what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, withholds what we truly deserve. Why? But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us. Because of his great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead, Paul says, God poured his grace, poured his love, poured his mercy on us. Even when we were dead. And notice how God, being rich in mercy, great in love, notice what God did. Three major words we see here in verses five and six. Three big things that God did to us, being ontologically existing, dead in our trespasses and sins. Notice what God did. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Three things. God co-enlivened us, he co-raised us, and he co-seated us in Christ. We were dead, but this is what God has done. He co-enlivened us. We were dead and he made us alive together. He raised us up, Paul says. This is the same word Paul used in Ephesians 1 to describe the resurrection of Jesus. So he made us alive and he resurrected us with Jesus. The third big word there is he co-seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Dr. Honer, who used to attend here, taught at Dallas Seminary, says, from this position of being seated with Christ, this means that we have a heavenly status with heavenly power to overcome the power of sin and death. God in Christ co-enlivened us. He co-raised us. He co-seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And notice why, verse seven. Why would God do this? Why would God take people who are dead and make them alive and raise them and seat them? Verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. So that, here's the purpose. Why would God do this? Why would God make us alive and raise us and seed us with Christ? To show off his glory. To put on display the riches of his grace for all eternity. We see the word grace here. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. And notice, it's not just a little bit of grace that we're given here, right? Notice verse seven, it's the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. But the key word is show. Why would God do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. The word for show there means to put on display, to call attention to something. Earlier, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were peripateoing around, showing off, putting on display our sin for the world to see. But here, God has raised us and made us alive and co-seated us with Christ, putting his grace on display for the world to see. Don't you love the contrast there? And for all eternity, notice Paul says, in the ages to come, God is going to be putting us on display as objects of his mercy, of his grace, of his kindness in Christ Jesus. I love it. And if Paul weren't clear enough, he reiterates this idea in verses 8 and 9, verses many of you have memorized. Notice what he says. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says, listen, this whole thing is a gift of God's grace. If you contributed anything to this equation, he said, you would boast about it, you would brag about it. You would show off forever what you did to contribute to it, but it's not of anything you do. It's purely of God's grace through faith so that he's the one who gets the glory. Grace is a beautiful word. When it comes to this idea of our problem and of God's solution, people often ask two questions. Number one, is sin really that bad? And number two, is grace really that good? First, is sin really that bad? Some people try to reason among themselves and say, listen, I'm not that bad of a guy. I mean, it's not like I'm Charles Manson or something. I haven't murdered people or anything. I mean, I'm really not that bad of a guy. So am I really dead in my trespasses and sins? That whole idea is really fundamentally rooted in a deficient view of what sin is. Sin is anything that falls short of the glory of God. It's anything that misses the mark of who God is in his perfection, in his holiness. Anything we do that's not perfect ultimately falls short of his glory. And we are completely, utterly dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin really is that bad because then it is an offense against a perfectly holy God. It doesn't matter if you 
murdered somebody, or if you cheated on your taxes, or if you cheated at Monopoly, we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We really are that bad off. The second question is, is grace really that good? Is grace really that good? Is it really a gift? Notice again, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Nothing you do adds to this equation. In fact, anytime you try to add something to this equation, it's no longer the gospel. It's not your works that save you. It's not your promise to do better that save you. It's not being a good person, walking down an aisle, getting baptized. It's nothing we do that saves us. It's only by grace through faith, period. So listen, and extend this opportunity to you as I do every week for those of you sitting here, for those of you watching online, if you've not really comprehended this message That God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, he saw you dead in your trespasses and sins and in Christ makes you alive and forgives you and redeems you. And, and, and this is the gift of God. If you've never believed that message right where you are, you can simply trust in Jesus for that gift. Another question people often ask is, well, what about works? I'm glad you asked. Notice verse 10. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Listen, good works don't save you, but God does save you to do good works. Good works don't save you. But once you are saved, God does good works in and through you. This is what Paul says here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. I love that word, by the way. The word for workmanship there, it's the Greek word poema. We get the English word poem from it. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that describes a masterpiece, a creation. In fact, Paul uses it in Romans 1 to describe the creation of the world. It's used outside of the New Testament in classical Greek literature to describe the forming, the creation of a crown. You are, Paul says, God's workmanship. God took someone who is dead and made them alive. What greater masterpiece is there than that? You're a masterpiece. Paul says. Now, what do you do with a masterpiece? If you have a work of art, a truly beautiful work of art, what do you do with it? You put it on display, don't you? You highlight what's been created. What you don't do is you don't give credit to the work of art itself, right? That would be silly. You don't take a, a painting and give credit to the painting. It didn't paint itself. Likewise, a, a sculpture didn't sculpt itself. A 
beautiful piece of musical composition didn't compose itself. You don't give credit to the work of art, you give credit to the one who created it, right? You don't give credit to the masterpiece, you give credit to the master creator. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and then notice this, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. These good works that God calls us to do, Paul says, God created them beforehand. He planned them ahead of time so that we would walk in them. Think of it this way. If you were expecting someone over to your house to stay with you, you would prepare ahead of time for their arrival. You would spend time cleaning your house. You would spend time cleaning the bed sheets and cleaning the towels in the bathroom so that your guest has a nice place to stay. You do all of the work ahead of time in preparation for their arrival. And likewise, God has done all of these beautiful works ahead of time preparing for our arrival. In other words, he does all the work. We're just kind of along for the ride. It's all his anyway. We don't get credit for our salvation. We don't even get credit for the good works that God does through us. We're just along for the ride. I like the story I've heard of Muhammad Ali. At the height of his career, he was once on a plane, and the captain came on and gave the announcement that it's time for everybody to put on your seatbelt. But he didn't put on a seatbelt. So the stewardess came by and said, Mr. Ali, you need to put on your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she said, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) The reality is we're just along for the ride. We don't contribute anything to this flight, to this plan, to this story. God is the one who wrote it. He's the one who does all the work. We're just along for the ride. So let's talk about application number three on your outline. We've seen here our problem. We existed dead in our trespasses and sins. We've seen God's solution. He has co-enlivened us, co-raised us, co-seated us with Christ so that we may be uh, people who put his grace and riches on display. So there's two things really I wanna highlight here in terms of application. Two things we see here in Ephesians 2, one through 10. Number one is what God has done. And number two, the type of people we are to be. Number one, what God has done, and number two, the type of people God has called us to be. First is I want, to see, I want you to see again what God has done. He has saved us. We existed ontologically, we were dead, but God has turned us into a masterpiece of his creation by enlivening us by raising us and by seating us in Christ in the heavenly places. He took us from corpses to creations, from sinners to saved, from dead people to displays of his glory, from wretches to works of art, from the walking dead to the walking alive. That is what God has done. This is the greatest message you have ever heard right here. Not the sermon. But what Paul says here, God in Christ has done for you as a gift by his grace. So because of that, number two, 
What kind of people does God call us to be? Because of who we were, dead in our trespasses and sins, because of what God has done in co-enlivening uh, us, co-resurrecting us, co-seating us with Christ, it only makes sense, what Paul says here in verse 10, is that we would then do the good works God has prepared ahead of us, showing off to the world the beauty of his grace. In other words, what people are we to be? We are to be living, breathing, talking, walking billboards of God's grace to a fallen world. We are to be walking, talking, breathing, living displays of God's glory for the world to see. Putting his grace on display. I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, we are alive in Christ, not dead in sins. Therefore, put off the old man and put on the new man. Take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. Take off the grave clothes, the old way of life. Stop walking around peripateoing in our sin and instead put on the grace clothes, walking around in the good works God has prepared ahead of time. It's time to put our practice or put our position into practice to put our conduct and make sure it's reflecting our confession, to have our walk reflect the one we worship. Did you catch that Paul uses the word walk twice here in these verses? It's a beautiful contrast. First, we were peripateoing around in our sin, but now God has called us to peripateo around in the good works God has prepared for us. Verse two and verse 10. So every step you take, every moment of every day, you're to put on display the good works, the masterpiece that God has created in saving you. One scholar says our lives are a living canvas portraying the glory of our creator and redeemer. Our lives are a living canvas to display the riches of God's grace that he's poured on us. There on your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. But your one thing for this week is this. I want you to think about what Paul is saying here in these verses, and I want you to reflect. Most importantly, I want you to ask the question, have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? It's a gift by God's grace. It's nothing you do, no works. You simply trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and God takes you from a corpse to a creation, a display of his glory. And so the second part of that question, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, I want you to ask yourself, are you walking in the good works God has prepared for you? Do you display to a fallen world what a redeemed life is. Let me give you a real specific way to do this. Here in about 15 minutes, we're gonna let out of this building. Probably everybody in here, myself included, we're hungry. We're gonna go out to a restaurant and get something to eat, right? Or it's a hot day today in Dallas, it's humid, and so you might go to North Park Mall and get a new handbag for you to put on display. 
But as you, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. But when you go, how are you gonna display to that waitress, to the person at the store, that you are a masterpiece of God's grace? In word and in deed, how are you gonna put his display, or display his grace, his goodness, his mercy, and his love to a fallen world around us? Listen, I told you at the beginning that this is gonna be the greatest message you have ever heard. Not the greatest sermon you've ever heard. I'm sure I messed it up in some way. But this is the greatest message that you've ever heard. But it's not just for me to tell you. It's for us to tell the world. And so wherever God is sending you this week, today at a restaurant, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, I hope that you share this word. It's the only message that takes people from death to life. So let's share this message of who God is and what he has done in saving us and taking us from sinners to save, from corpses to creations. Taking us, as we'll sing here in just a second, to display his grace in a fallen world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking us from the grave to the garden. Thank you for creating us to be a masterpiece, displaying your glory, your grace, your mercy, your love to a fallen world. And Father, I pray, just like Paul was writing this to believers, to the church. I pray that this church, Grace Bible Church, we would hear these words and we would be compelled and excited to share this message, to live out this message everywhere we go, that we would be ambassadors of Christ, that we would be displays of your glory, that we would, everywhere we go, give people a reason for the hope that is within us. I ask this for myself, for each one here, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.